You're five feet nothing, a hundred and nothing, and you got hardly a speck of athletic ability. And you hung in with the best college football team in the land for two years. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, Tulane Law Professor, co-founder of the Tulane Center for Sport, and director of the Tulane Sports Law Program. Today's episode features Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby, and Executive Director of the Ivy League, Robin Harris. We discuss the decisions to return to play or not to play, that is the question, and other issues in college football and basketball, name image and likeness rights, and the possibility of the Power Five conferences splitting off. Here we go. Welcome, Bob, Robin, and Val. It's a pleasure to have you all here. And I have to say, it's, a, it's an extra pleasure for me because I feel like I have a pretty strong connection to all three of you. Robin and I are both fellow Duke alum. We've known each other for a fairly long time. Val and I have worked in various circles together for a while on, on a number of different college sports issues. And Bob, although I don't know directly, is the mentor of the athletic director here at Tulane, or really maybe the most trusted mentor of Troy Dannon. And so I feel like I know Bob because every time I talk to Troy, he mentions something that Bob has said recently or has told him in the past. So it's almost as if I'm talking directly to Bob. I knew him when he had hair. <laughs> and he knew you when you were there. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. That was, that I knew you. Robin. That was very I know. Cool. Sorry. Remember, it's just audio. <laughs> Bob has a full head of hair as we're talking right now. Okay. So what I want to do is start with a topic that everybody's talking about. We can't avoid it. We've got it. We've got to talk about it because of how serious it is. And then we can move on to some other topics. So the topic I obviously want to discuss is how you all feel about no Duke players getting drafted in the first round of the NBA draft. <laughs> all right, so what I want to talk about, thank you, Robin, for laughing. We have to talk about COVID. I know two of you are very concerned about that. <laughs> I wish that they were seniors who were being yeah. considered. Yeah, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. So let's talk about COVID and the decision-making process around COVID because I think it's helpful for people to have the process demystified of decisions that are made around playing or not playing or, or, or where to play and, and under what schedule. And I, I just to peel back the curtain a little bit, recognizing that a lot of stuff has to stay behind the curtain because these things were said in private and confidence, but to help people just understand from the role of the conference commissioners or executive director how decisions are made and the input that goes in. And so let me actually start with Val on this one, because you were in the unique position in the middle of the Big East tournament of having to shut down the tournament at halftime of a game. And, and I know that didn't decision wasn't made just at that moment. A lot went into that decision leading up to it. But can you talk about who was at the table for that discussion and then the role of state and local governments in eventually deciding that you could no longer play the tournament? Yeah, sure, Gabe. So it's a long answer. I'll try to make it a short one. Like all leagues, we were in constant communication in the days leading into our decision with our board. I think I had eight gatherings in five days 
of my presidents, including the morning of the day where we canceled the tournament, we had a regularly scheduled board meeting. It started at nine and ended around 1130. So I had my board together with me on that fateful day in the morning. We decided that our North Star was going to be the city of New York and the state of New York. And I was in direct contact with authorities there who were, frankly, counseling us that we were good to go with the Big East Tournament at the Garden. And it wasn't until that morning, it was actually about 1220 that day, I got a call from the city to alert us that they were going to, the state was going to impose a large gathering restriction in New York later that afternoon. And so, again, a longer story, but my board had dispersed. We had a game that had already started, but I was able literally in 20 minutes to get my presidents back on the phone, explain the situation. We were learning concurrently that other conferences were canceling their tournaments. I think I might even have touched base with Bob that morning once I heard his news and learned about their decision and the thought behind that. And so that was it. We They quickly agreed that we had no choice, that our North Star had been, had given us the, had handed down the decision and, and then we canceled. So it was the culmination really of lots of calls. We were all talking to each other in a way. We were tracking nationally what was happening with the virus. And we were in touch with the garden, of course, who was in touch directly with the governor's office. And then lastly, the NCA, of course, you know, played a role. And later that day, of course, they canceled the tournament, spring sports and so on. So there was some interface there that was a factor as well. Thanks, Valen. And so, Bob, the, the decision in March in some ways was easy. It was brutal, but it was easy because it just seemed clear at that point that everybody had to stop because the world was stopping and everything was shutting down. And then you fast forward to July, August, and through the, the fall and winter, and the decisions have become strangely harder because there's not the consensus that there was in March, and different doctors are making different decisions, and obviously different conferences have made different decisions. So can you talk about, from the Big 12 perspective, the decision first in terms of deciding to go ahead and play football when other conferences already decided not to and, and to play fall sports, uh, and then about the decisions that will be made or are being made about basketball, given that, and we'll get to Robin in a second, that the Ivy League has already decided to cancel winter sports. So, so can you talk about how the, an individual conference makes that decision while other conferences are maybe making different decisions? Yeah, I, I can talk about it a little bit from my perspective, and, and there were a number of conferences involved in it. I, I had a stretch of about almost six months where I was on the phone every day with the commissioners of the other A5 conferences talking about what we were going to do with football. And I, I think back to mid-July, there was certainly no, no real likelihood that we could just declare what we were going to do and, and have it come to pass. We learned early on that patience was a uh, not only a virtue, but, but a leadership trait. And and our doctors said, move slowly and make small adjustments and look at the environment around you. And we'll try and tell you if it looks like the wheels are coming off the tracks. And here we are in the middle of November, and they haven't told us that the wheels are off the tracks yet. But we've had our challenges like everybody else has. We, had, we have one game canceled this week, and, and we had another one that was wobbly. And it's a Groundhog Day experience. And yet 
all five of the A5 conferences were looking at the same scientific and medical data and yet came to different conclusions for their own reasons. And, and I, I think that's perfectly okay. In some ways, it, it almost appears to have broken along red state, blue state type of lines, but it's obviously not that simple. And we have had our big outbreaks in Texas and the trend lines have not looked good. And yet we've just tried to stay the course. But I, I have to admit, I, I am skeptical about the basketball season. Uh, Robin may turn out to be the smartest person on the planet by getting, uh, president. <laughs> getting the inevitable accomplished early. But I think we're going to try and play it. Frankly, I think it's easier getting ready for basketball, having gone through the early stages of football. But as late as August 20th, we still didn't have any surety that we were going to be playing games when the 12th of September came around. And you really have had to have been patient and you have to have, have really read the tea leaves over and over again. And I don't, you'll hear no bravado out of me nor any statements that we've got it figured out. I think anybody that tries to forecast what's going to happen two weeks from now is delusional. I just don't think it's reasonable to think that we can put those kinds of plans in place. Now, you look at what the NCAA did with the NCAA tournament, and I think Dan Gavitt and his staff were smart to do it because they really didn't have any choice. And that's what I think we have to do is we we have to each in our own way decide when we're forced to make a decision. And we ought to be we ought to, you know, wait as much as we can until we're forced. And every circumstance is different. I'm not going to I'm not going to cast dispersions at the Big Ten or the Pac-12 because they didn't start when we started. They had their own reasons and, and they acted upon them. So, Robin. Ivy League decision to cancel sports and the Ivy league makes an announcement. Was it last week or yes, on Thursday. Time that winter sports are canceled and spring sports are at a minimum pushed back as I understand it. So take us through again, both the process of that and then the rationale for making the decision and the timing of the decision. Yeah, and it's interesting because we've now had to manage this three times. In March, we were in crisis mode. The situation was changing daily. And we went from trying to figure out how are we going to conduct our basketball tournaments at Harvard and how are we going to conduct them probably without fans to, no, we actually have to cancel them, but we're going to still allow spring sports to occur to actually know we have to cancel spring sports. And that all happened in less than a week. And the presidents were involved in multiple conference calls in that time frame, where they do not, until that time, had not really engaged in conference calls on the drop of a hat because their schedules are crazy. And it was actually a, an incredibly difficult decision then because we didn't know as much as we know about the virus. And so there wasn't a good sense of what was happening. But of course, our presidents speak with all these public health experts. They have them on their own campus, epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists. And the virus was proceeding exactly as the experts predicted. It was doubling. And the numbers back then are quaint and the doubling compared to where we are now. That was a very difficult decision and we didn't know what the reaction would be. 
And I never anticipated that within 48 hours, sports would be done for some time period. When we had to make the decision for fall sports and then again now for winter sports and delaying spring sports, we had more time to think through the data, the ramifications, the issues. We had time to plan how could we conduct the events safely and travel and competition. And our athletic directors and coaches were able to put plans and concepts together And this wasn't about us not being able to conduct the competitions. What it really came down to is our presidents looking at the health and safety of the participants, the student athletes, coaches, and others, the campus communities, and society as well. And each time they had to make these decisions, they had to consider the campus policies. And because we treat athletics as an important component of the campus culture, And because student athletes are students first, campus policies apply. And with our campuses not allowing students and faculty to travel or limiting travel significantly, limiting visitors to campus, limiting group sizes, competition just becomes impossible at that point. And so for the decision with winter sports, we really waited as long as we could on behalf of the student athletes. And it got to the point where the trends just were getting worse. And then what we've learned is until the trends, until you control the trend, it keeps getting worse. And so the presidents felt competition at least through February, probably into early March is not going to be feasible for the Ivy League based on our campus policies and the decisions impacting the significant adjustments campuses have made generally. Throughout the semester, we're going to continue into the spring at some level, and that extends, unfortunately, but appropriately to athletics. So, Val, I I have to follow up with this question. When Harvard and Yale and and the Ivies and the doctors and the epidemiologists there make a decision about health and safety, it's pretty powerful, and I would imagine it's pretty influential. So, I, I know you're planning now to go forward, at least it seems like, with the basketball season with additional precautions. But is that, or or I assume the presidents and everybody else, they're on that speed dial and you just send up the Big East signal and everybody gathers together for that emergency meeting. But is the sense that this can be done if it's done carefully and then if it looks like numbers are getting worse, it's just, you're going to, you're going to hit the pause button and then hope that it can pick back up in the spring. How many different contingencies, you don't have to give me the actual contingencies, but but are there multiple different contingencies based on what the, the country looks like in the next month or two? I, I, what I would say, Gabe, is right now our doctors are of the view that there is a way to make this happen. And, and so we're hopeful. Are we realistic? Of course. I, I don't think any league going into this doesn't have their eyes wide open about about the risks evolved and the complexities of travel, for example, and what's needed in terms of testing and in-venue arrangements that have to be made in order to mitigate risk. No one expects an elimination of risk here. We've got, as all leagues do, our own medical panel. We've got three infectious disease specialists. In fact, one of them from Georgetown was just appointed to President-elect Biden's COVID task force. And she's been advising us for months. 
We're in 11 different jurisdictions in the Big East. And I, I would say for us, that's been a bit of a factor. So for example, in, in March, when the East Coast was getting hit hard, the Midwest wasn't at all. And so I would say we had a bit of a division of view back in March. We weren't so unified in terms of the trajectory of the virus because it hadn't hit some of our jurisdictions at all. And so until it happens to you, sometimes you can't really absorb, absorb the reality. But I think for now, our plan to your point is we're, we're marching ahead. We've got games scheduled beginning next week. I will say we have had some schools that have been hit with positive tests and are in quarantine. And so I do expect that the beginning part of our season will be disrupted and we're likely to lose games. I think for all of us in college basketball, the key will be how we end the season or if we end the season. A rocky start to me is manageable, not ending again. I think would be calamitous in many ways. And we've got time there. The NCAA, some know, has already made the decision to create a controlled environment for the tournament. They're not going to be in 14 different sites. They're going to be in one, likely Indy. They are advising all of us to hold the uh, same dates for the ending of the season. And that's the guidance now they're giving. They expect to play. I, my own view is if the season has to be moved back in order to finish it, that's fine by us. We would certainly be adaptable. And there is a longer runway to that sort of a decision. I, I'm hopeful we can do it. Our schools are taking all necessary precautions. We're following NCA guidance, CDC guidance. We're going to be respectful of the decisions of our local authorities as it relates to contact tracing and large gathering restrictions. I don't think you're going to see many fans at a Big East basketball game this year, to be honest. We have a major national television agreement with Fox. So every one of our men's basketball games is on some Fox network. And so that does create some complexities for us with scheduling because we're trying to thread the needle there with, with, with television as well as with health and safety. We won't do anything foolish or reckless for sure. But again, our doctors are telling us that it looks like we can give this a go and that's what we're planning to do. Bob, in, in terms of okay. the, as you mentioned, the, the doctors were all looking at the same data and yet it's not surprising that reasonable people can make different differences, make different decisions. And we see it all the time where you get two doctors looking at the same facts, whether it's your own diagnosis or whatever it might be. And someone says, play, the other one says, don't play. Or someone says, have surgery. The other one says, don't have surgery. And you make your best decision based on the information you're getting from the doctors. And there's obviously some risk tolerance in there baked in and the risk assessment. And so it's, I don't think anyone's questioning whether you're getting good or bad advice from doctors. And when you have doctors from some of the best hospitals and institutions in the world, but our consultant, by the way, was from Duke University. Well, there you go. So the best. Yeah. So that but there's a I think there's the issue that's come up a little bit of what does it mean when we generally think of college sports and the need for uniformity? That and that's a sort of a constant theme. And we'll talk about it when we get into the NIL discussion, but that we need all the schools to be playing under the same rules. And we want there to be cooperation. And then you have major conferences within the Power Five making different decisions, at least initially. And then Division Three very quickly canceling and, and keeping it canceled. And so there's a perception that there is this lack of uniformity within college sports. And how do we explain that? Or is this just a, it's a pandemic, there's no way to explain anything right now. 
And these are unique situations and, and we can't draw too much from it. But people are drawing something by saying, wait a minute, why is one conference going ahead and the other conference not going ahead? Yeah, well, it's a fair question. And it also gets portrayed as well. This group of commissioners got together and did one thing and this group got together and did another thing. It isn't quite that simple. We can talk to the other commissioners all we want to, but in, in the end, we all have to go back to boards of 10 or 12 or 14 presidents and each have their own circumstances on campus, each have their own uh, perspectives. Some have medical backgrounds. When uh, Eli Capilouto at Kentucky it was the chair of the board of the NCAA, he's, usually, he's uniquely positioned because he's a, a PhD in public health. He, he has real expertise in this space, and yet the SEC and the Big 12 we didn't have the benefit of somebody like that on our board, but we had a couple of other doctors and a whole bunch of good consultants. And I just don't, I, I think the collaboration is good and we collaborate a lot, even to the point of being accused of colluding. But the fact is, you can come to different conclusions based upon your own local circumstances. And I, as an example, I think the SEC said, we think we probably are going to have an outbreak when the students come back to campus. And so therefore, we want to wait to start our football and fall sports until late in September. We had schools starting a little earlier than some of them did. And we felt like by the 12th, when we started, that it was an okay thing to do. We could have been dead wrong. The SEC could have had their own downside as uh, starting as late as they did. They may still see their downside because Unlike most years where they have four non-conference games, they're now beating up on each other every game. And you're going to have some new losers and some new winners. And there are, all of these decisions have ramifications. And I don't think cooperation necessarily means you always land in the exact same spot. The revenue impact and what this means financially for the schools, the conferences, the future of college sports. And I'm going to I think I'm quoting Robin from 2017. I'm at worst. I'm paraphrasing that some Division One schools outside the Ivy League are headed towards a financial cliff with their athletic programs, and will soon have to choose between trying to compete with the Power Five at a semi-pro level in football and basketball, and trying to maintain a full offering of non-revenue sports. And we then got a pandemic, which made the cliff steeper or pushed people further towards the cliff. And we've seen what's happened with Stanford and, and Dartmouth and Iowa and other schools that are cutting the Olympic sports, the, what we used to call the non-revenue sports. What does, and I'll, Bob, let me start with you on this one. What does losing the revenue distribution from the men's basketball tournament from last March and then potentially this coming March? I mean, I think we're all hopeful that we'll be able to find a way to have the tournament. But if we don't, I think most people know how large of a percentage of the revenue for the NCAA comes in through the men's basketball tournament. So what does it mean for a power five conference and its schools if that revenue is gone? Well, it, it's important that the A5 schools don't take the basketball uh, revenue situation too capriciously because it, it is an enormously important piece of revenue for not only a whole bunch of schools and conferences, but particularly for the National Association, that something approaching 90% of the budget comes from the men's basketball tournament. It's not an insignificant financial consideration. In all frankness, 
we derive, we being A5 schools, derive a lot more from football television and from the CFP than we do from the NCAA basketball tournament on a relative basis. But it's still an important amount of money. And more than that, it's a very important event for our country and for our colleges and universities. And it's the event above and beyond all others where Horatio Alger is alive and well, and anybody can rise up and do something great on those first two two or three, four days of the NCAA tournament. And it's one of the great things about college athletics. And so it's important that we get it right. And it's certainly a financial consideration. There is no doubt about that. But it's more than that. March Madness is, is really the representation that anybody can have their day in the bright spotlight. And it's, it's a great thing for our association. It's a great thing for college athletics. And, and yet the, the season is going to be conducted during the heart of the flu and virus season. And it's, we're already starting to see some escalation of cases and we're indoors and we're in small planes and we're in small locker rooms and we're in close contact and we share a ball. And all of those things are going to be challenges. And one of the, one of the derivative effects from, from not playing or having disrupted playing season is there's money associated with it. And the money is important because many athletic programs eat what they kill and others are substantially subsidized by their universities. But whatever the model is, the revenue from the men's basketball tournament is a is a really important part of it. We find ourselves in a very tenuous circumstance, and it's going to take all of us pulling together to uh, get to the finish line. Robin, what is your current concern level? If you were concerned in 2017, what's the concern given? As Bob said, the A5 has the football revenue that the Ivies and and the Big East and other conferences outside of the A5 have. So what's your fear level, your worry level? And and I think Dr. Hainline a couple of weeks ago said that there's so much focus on football and men's basketball, and and he'd like it to be a 24-sport vision and not just a a two-sport vision. What's your level of optimism or pessimism about that vision? Yeah, I think um, it's a heightened concern now. And certainly the it's not just the basketball tournament revenue or the NCAA revenue that these schools are missing. The, the, there are so many schools themselves that have been hit financially. I, I think every school has been hit financially generally, not even just in athletics because of the virus, whether they're losing revenue through tuition and other sources, but also the expenditures to make the campuses safe, to have all the testing. Someone's paying for that. So my concern is broader that there's institutions of higher education that are themselves potentially vulnerable. And then you have many athletic departments that are not self-sustaining and that require institutional support. And the NCAA minimum sports sponsorship for Division I is 16, if you're at FBS, 16 sports, of which track and field and cross country count as six, by the way, and 14 for FCS and those, um, sorry, Val, those without football. (laughs) And I think it's very concerning that basketball centric, yes, it's very concerning that we're seeing the cuts from 
programs that don't even currently offer broad-based sports. Like when Stanford and we've had some Ivy schools drop sports as well, that's certainly concerning. And in some respects, is that a bit of a canary in the coal mine? But I find it even more concerning when you have FBS programs who don't offer more than 30 sports, the Stanford and the Ivies, that they're dropping these sports. And then these are well-resourced schools. So then you have other schools that are not as well-resourced. And I think the impact of the pandemic is going to be significant. And my philosophy has always been, this is probably why I'm in the Ivy League, that if you believe in the college sports model with student-athletes playing you should believe in it for broad-based sports offerings. And it's also concerning from at an Olympic level that we are losing programs that have prepared Olympians. Yeah, thanks, Robin. And Bob, I know you've got to jump, so let me just give you this last quick one. There's been a lot of talk. It's died down a little bit, but that the pandemic and the A5 playing and, and most other schools or conferences not may be the tipping point to a breakaway of the A5 into a it's a super conference or more of a super conference. Do you think that, is there discussion of that among commissioners or presidents, or is it just, you can't think about that now if you're just trying to get through this season and the next season? Yeah, I, d- I certainly agree with all that Robin said about the, the stability of finances. And and I do think that this, even if we have a vaccine and even if we have readily available and affordable testing, the pandemic and the effects of it are going to be with us for a while. And we're starting to see, you. Yeah, I think Robin said it very well, very well-funded programs that are considering significant narrowing of their sports offerings. And in the end, I I spent 10 years on the U.S. Olympic Committee, and Robin is exactly correct. When you see men's gymnastics programs going away, when you see wrestling programs, track and field programs going away, it won't be very long before that shows up on the podium. Our programs, the A5 programs, are under tremendous pressure. The I think our country, in large measure, is headed more and more towards individual liberties all the time. And that plays itself out in the, the lives of the college student athlete. They're more activists. They're, they're more aware of their platform. They have more platforms available to them. I, I really believe that intercollegiate athletics will continue to be a platform for social change and, and for making statements. And I, I think that's most critical and most high profile in our high profile sports of football and men's basketball and a, a relatively small number of others. And many of the, the best players and highest profile individuals are people of color. And so I, I think that there's a, there's a raft of challenges that we have at our level. And the autonomy movement was really a re, an attempt to try and be more responsive to, to those needs. It really wasn't an attempt to separate ourselves from anybody else. It was an attempt to be able to be responsive to the needs of the 21st century athlete. And I think all of that continues. We're the source of lots of lawsuits. We're we're the uh, recipients of lots of scrutiny at the state level and at the congressional level. We're the topic of many legislative initiatives. 
And there are just an awful lot of folks that are involved in the the enterprise of collegiate athletics that want to have something to say about it. And I don't know what that means for us going forward structurally. I do know that we need to be able to try and protect ourselves from from legal challenges. I do know that we need to be responsive to the demands of student athletes for uh, use of their name, image, and likeness and, and for access to things that that they consider to be their rights and property. We also have the counterbalancing approach to that we would like to not have uh, young people participating in college athletics that are professionalized and that are there for reasons other than to be college students. It's a, I think it's a very difficult environment with many competing priorities, most of which are legitimate and, and many of which are mutually exclusive. And so I just think it's a real challenge that isn't going to go away anytime soon. And I don't know that breaking away from the NCAA or putting in another division or trying to, in one way or another, jury-rig the, the, the governance process is necessarily the whole story. It could be part of it going forward, but I think it's, it, we need to be mindful of trying to solve the problems for the multitude of stakeholders more than having any sort of preconceived notion as to what the structure should look like. Thank you, Bob. I, I, I appreciate it. Gabe, uh, I am going to have to run. Yeah, I'm no, I, I, I'm going to, you're dismissed. Bob and Val, pardon me for, for rambling on and dominating. It's, it's good to be on with the two of you and good luck. Thanks, Thanks. for having me. Thanks, Thanks Bob. Bob. See you soon. Happy Thanksgiving. I was going to say, make sure you don't edit out the parts where he completely agrees with me. You can just put that out there on its own. I've got it. This is the longest I think I've been in any space with Val without talking about name, image, and likeness. So let's talk about name, image, and likeness. Val, you were the co-chair of one of the NCAA working groups. The legislation has been submitted from each division to be voted on in January. Without going into all of the details in the proposal, it's pretty clear that the NCAA's primary concerns and the school's primary concerns are this becoming pay-for-play and used as recruiting inducements. What do you think are the key provisions in the in the at least draft legislation or the proposals that will help minimize that, if not completely prevent it? I would say that the the key ways to get at that at this point, Gabe, are, are probably through disclosure. This is not a an approval system that's being constructed here necessarily. As, as through your work, there there will be guardrails um, to keep this from being just an unfettered system, and but not a system where a, approval per se is going to be required for these commercial endeavors that the student athletes will now have an opportunity to access. So I think disclosure, I think we think is one, one way to monitor what kinds of transactions are being entered into, what sort of market values are being assigned to these activities, who's involved with them. This will be on, the, the burden will be on the student athletes to honestly disclose the nature of these arrangements, again, who's involved with them, who their professional service provider is, because as, as we, we did set this up so that the student athletes can secure third parties to help them navigate the complexities of the marketplace. And so there is an interest in knowing who these people are, and maybe there's a certification around, around them. And really the question we're still grappling with is what is that enforcement mechanism? Once you've um, developed the algorithms to red flag 
certain of this information, the question then becomes, okay, now what do we do with that? Does that go back to campus personnel, compliance personnel? Is it somehow put on the backs of, of NCAA enforcement representatives? Is this is the disclosure entity, which could be a third-party entity that's being developed right now, did they also take on some sort of an enforcement role to try to keep out this these components of this system that are more problematic in the college space because we recruit? The pros don't have to do that. They Their athletes are assigned in the first instance through the draft or in the case of the Olympic team, you're, who you play for is determined largely by your passport. We don't have that in college sports. I I would say disclosures one, there will be some guidelines around, probably around conflicts, how that's going to get managed, you know, how a school would be able to decide whether a student athlete can or can't enter into an arrangement with a company that's a competitor in a category that an institutional sponsor of some significance resides. So there's, there's going to be some mechanisms around that to try to make this work in the college space. But my prediction is that this will evolve over time. We're going to start somewhere. We're going to make judgments. It won't be perfect. Things that we're concerned about right now may not be things that we need to be concerned about. And there's things we that may happen that we never even thought of and that we're going to have to react to. And then last but not least, we don't know whether Congress will intervene in NIL and create their own set of guardrails here or oversight that would allow us to manage it perhaps in a different way. And that's obviously on the horizon. We'll know more after um, the Georgia runoffs about where the Senate is and sort of where they're leaning in terms of intervention with respect to NIL or other elements of collegiate athletics reform. So there's a whole lot of unknowns here, but I think anybody involved in this will tell you, we think it was the right thing to do at the right time. Social media in particular has expanded opportunities for regular students in ways that were unimaginable just a few years ago. And so I think the thinking is, why not let student athletes take advantage of that, but in a way that works for the collegiate model. Thanks, Val. And and yeah, between federal intervention, state intervention, the Supreme Court, Georgia runoff, there's a a few unknowns there. It is a pretty remarkable time. And this is not even the number one issue on people's minds, obviously, because of the pandemic. Robin, first on NIL, what, what is the concern level with the Ivy presidents and the athletic directors, you don't hear as much of the the hand-wringing necessarily from the the Ivy schools. Is it a big topic of of conversation? And is there the same level of fear that this might turn it into pay-for-play or or service recruiting inducements when your model, the Ivy League model, is so different than the other models out there? It's interesting because it has been a topic we've talked about at the presidential level, at the athletic director level for a couple of years now. And I think credit to Val and the groups that she has led, the proposals that are under consideration by the NCAA are not raising any major issues as they're framed for the Ivy League. And I, the devil will be in the details. I agree with Val that refinements are going to be needed and we're going to learn things and we're going to have to adjust. I couldn't agree more with that statement. But at least as the proposals are framed right now, they're very consistent with our approach, which actually ties into the decisions to not be competing in sports, is that our student athletes are students 
And so these proposals actually allow our student athletes to be more like students when it comes to their own name, image, and likeness. And that's something we support. And there have to be certain guardrails, either the recruiting piece and the inducements. But we think with the enforcement mechanisms, recruiting inducements are already prohibited. So allowing name, image, and likeness does not change the fact that you still can't use that to improperly induce a prospect to come to your campus. And uh, same thing with booster involvement. Double again is in the details. I think the enforcement piece is a big one and the transparency. But I think as long as this doesn't morph into a pay-for-play model, that would be very problematic for us. I think that would be problematic for colleges generally who we don't want to have a pay-for-play model. There's separate structures that allow for that in their professional sports. So as long as we don't evolve into the pay-for-play model, I think we're in a good spot. The, the troubling aspect, though, is the question that exists is, will Congress and will the states, as Val referenced and as you referenced, Gabe, think that this is sufficient? And if Congress doesn't act and we have 50 different state structures, that's unmanageable. I think that's untenable for college athletics. And, and it's interesting, and, and Val and I have talked about this in other contexts, but it does seem, as Val said, part of the reason we're having this discussion and it's moved forward so quickly is because of the explosion of social media and I think the recognition of the important economic rights and how this is a civil rights issue. But what's fascinating to me is for a good segment of the country, the reason this is important is because they want their video game back. It has nothing to do with any of that other stuff. They really don't care whether athletes get rights or not. They just want to be able to play their NCAA video game. But that's for a a, a separate conversation we can have about group licensing and, and how people they can do it. They can still do it, Gabe. They just can't use school marks. There you go. So, yeah, well, so we got it in anyway. No, yeah. They could still yeah. have it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then, all right. Thank you both. We are just about out of time. I had a, a long list of diversity and inclusion questions I wanted to ask you. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to come back at some other point to talk about how we can get more diversity at the coaching ranks, at the administrator ranks. And just want to say for people who are listening, that Val and Robin are pioneers, trailblazers, and they're two of the most influential and, and powerful figures in, in college athletics, and they're, and they're both women. And I, I hope that many who are listening realize that it can be done and there is a path, and I hope you are not discouraged by some of the numbers that are out there and, and that people like Robin and Val are, are incredible mentors and leaders. And so thank you for all that you do and for the focus you put on these diversity and inclusion issues and student safety and welfare. So we're at, we're right at the, at three o'clock. We'll stop there. Thank you both. Thanks for all you're doing with the Knight Commission and with sort of the issues of the day, because that sort of deep thinking, it really, it really makes a difference and it's, is very helpful. Thanks. Yeah. I'm hoping I've signed up for each of the webinars and I'll be on the one in early December. December 3rd is a big one. Yeah. Yeah, it's on my calendar. They've all been on my calendar. And I know the replays are there. You guys are doing great stuff with that. Thank you both again for the time. Thanks so much. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you all for listening. And I hope you have or had a happy Thanksgiving, depending on when you're listening to this. Thanks to Bob, Val, and Robin for coming on. And I do want to put in a quick plug for the Knight Commission's virtual forum that Robin mentioned. It takes place on December 3rd at 1 p.m. Eastern. The commission will release its recommendations for significant reform of the NCAA Division I model. I highly recommend that any administrators or fans of college sports listen in. You can get registration information on knightcommission.org. And of course, 
thanks to my sponsor, Ritvest, the fastest growing Ritvest company in the country. Ritvest. See you next time, Between the Lines. You're an all-American and our captain. Act like it.